you all for coming. It's great to see all of you. Uh, you're all friends of Joe and Sharon and Karen and me. Uh, hopefully by the end of the evening you'll be uh, at least subscribers to and possibly friends of the new Criterion. Uh, we're here this evening ostensibly to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the new Criterion. And that's kind of special because as Roger mentioned at lunch today, uh, pretty unusual uh, for a high tone, as he put it, uh, conservative periodical, monthly periodical, uh, to last for sometimes even 30 months, let alone 30 years. So it's a special achievement. Joe told me earlier that when he introduced the two gentlemen we're going to hear from tonight, uh, last night at his place when he hosted a similar event, uh, that he had tears in his eyes. And um, it brought to mind at least one story for me, uh, that being of the late Senator Edward Kennedy, uh, whom it was rumored uh, often had tears in his eyes, uh, especially regarding the relationships that he had with uh, some of his women. But then it turned out to be the mace. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the introduction for any introductions always needs some uh, some further introduction, uh, and the big problem with uh, introducing people of achievement, uh, people who are really important in the world, is that often you can say too much. Uh, and sometimes even uh, start to irritate a little bit those who do know something about them. Uh, often you can say too little because regardless of their achievements, there are sometimes people in any crowd of 50 or more who might not know all the little finer points. Um, and regarding that last item, uh, I'm reminded of one of our own sons whom we took to New York with us some years ago when he was 18 years old and walked into 21, uh, a rather well-known establishment, at least in Manhattan, and coming down the stairs uh, in this establishment were the true giants of the National Football League. Uh, and I looked up and I said, Mark, there's Rosie Greer. And Mark said, who is she? <laughs> so, so we don't want to say too little, uh, but maybe, maybe we can, uh, like Goldilocks, uh, get, this, get this exactly right. <clears throat> uh, Roger, I believe, is going to speak to us first. Uh, Roger Kimball uh, was educated at Bennington and at Yale University. Uh, he is, at least in my estimation, uh, possibly the heir to Bill Buckley's mantle as, as one of the leading conservatives uh, in the United States. Uh, his work through the years uh, on behalf of all of us, all of us, as, as conservatives, <laughs> uh, has been uh, tremendously worthwhile, tremendously important. Uh, the new criterion being uh, only one of many things that, that Roger has accomplished uh, in his uh, tenure as uh, possibly uh, the leading conservative in, in uh, the United States. Uh, Roger is a, an author uh, of great renown. Uh, his name is on the titles of, I'm guessing, at least two dozen uh, books, uh, either as the author or uh, the editor or a contributor. Um, 
he has been the editor of the new Criterion now for, for 30 years um, and uh, just does lots of amazing things. Uh, he writes not only for the new Criterion but for the National Review. Uh, some of his articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal and other places uh, that, that you're all familiar with. Uh, Roger is going to speak to us tonight about, uh, actually I'm not sure what, because I was told earlier that there's been some deviant, uh, uh, deviance deviant. <laughs> from, uh, from, uh, deviant. from the uh, schedule. <clears throat> but I, I think at least the, the purported title uh, of Roger's uh, talk to us tonight is going to be Why Barack Obama Does Not Read the New Criterion. <laughs> so... Uh, We'll uh, have a few more words later on about the new criterion, uh, but for right now, Roger Kimball. Well, thank you for that, Dwight. Your, your sense of flattering hyperbole does your credit. <laughs> um, just a, a couple of uh, remarks about the new criterion. I have not been the editor for 30 years. Um, uh, I, my colleague there, Hilton Kramer, started the new Criterion back in, in the early 80s, and I began writing for it in the second season, uh, but joined the staff in the, the late 1980s and um, uh, really became the editor a, a few years ago. Um, it, it is an accomplishment uh, for a, um, a magazine like the new Criterion, which is serious but not academic. Uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're about the important things, the important questions, but I think we're written with a, a, lively, a lively sense of, of humor. Uh, it's, it's unusual for such a magazine to last for, for 30 years. We're named, by the way, as many of you may know, for um, T.S. Eliot's magazine, The Criterion, which was one of the most influential magazines of the last century. started in 1922, I think, and went on to 1939. So they lasted about 17 years, uh, we've beat that record. And um, Elliot's Magazine, uh, at its peak of circulation, I think I have this number right, was about 700, modest. But it was the right 700. And uh, the new criterion circulation, as Milton said of Paradise Lost, is a, it's a fit audience, though few. Uh, but it was quite a bit bigger than, than uh, the original criterion. And uh, we hope that, uh, with your help, we'll, we'll get bigger still. And I'll say a little more about that in, in a moment, but I just want to point out that I think all of you have our uh, big fat 30th anniversary issue on your chair. And inside you'll see there's a little uh, uh, publicity for the magazine, lots of uh, nice things said about us by important people. And you'll also see that there's a little checkbox where you can, uh, you can um, check off a little area to become a friend of the new criterion at various levels. <laughs> now, I want to point out that the, uh, some people think that the Arabs have been a backward civilization, contributed very little to, to culture. This is not true. This is not true. They contributed one very important thing, the zero. <laughs> I want you to think about that, the zero. The, the decimal place, you know. <laughs> now, um, I am going to talk a little bit about why Barack Obama does not read the new criterion. <clears throat> and I'm going to do that in the context of uh, what I think is one of the most important problems we face today, namely a fundamental renegotiation of the relationship between the individual and the state. Uh, 
This country was founded on uh, a few simple but important political principles. When James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington forged this country, they had looked at the, the history of democracies in the past and they saw, the, which is a history of graveyards, right? I mean, societies that had been democracies briefly, they flourished and then they disappeared. Why did they disappear? Well, they disappeared because democracies, democracies are peculiarly susceptible to a certain form of uh, deviance, deformation. Uh, they can get taken over by uh, what Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, called democratic despotism. And so people like James Madison had see, saw this. They, they saw that th this happening, and they wanted to forge a government that would be a preserve for individual liberty and that would protect us, citizens, from the power of the state. What was the purpose of government, they asked themselves. They said, it's really pretty limited. The government should protect us from foreign invasion. It should protect individual liberty, help us uh, you know, honor contracts and that kind of, kind of thing. And apart from that, it should get out of the way. It should get out of the way and let people attend to their own lives. It should let democratic capitalism, the most powerful engine for the production of wealth that has ever been invented, do its thing. And what is its thing? Its thing is to make society prosperous. And uh, 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 Dwight mentioned Edward Kennedy. I'll, I'll quote my, one of my favorite lines. I don't have very many, but one of my favorite lines from John F. Kennedy, who when he enacted a big tax cut back in the early 60s, pointed out that a rising tide floats all boats. Very important. Now, this is a lesson, I regret to say, that um, our current masters in Washington do not understand, and especially, in my view, the incumbent of 1600 Pennsylvania definitely does not understand. I think that Barack Obama uh, has basically two fundamental misconceptions about the way the world works. One has to do with economics. He believes that the purpose of economic activity is to redistribute wealth. You all remember the famous uh, scene with Barack Obama and Joe the plumber. You know, I just want to spread the wealth around, said Barack Obama. Now think about that. Who are other spreaders of wealth that we know about? Well, there was Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot and uh, people like that. Uh, it's a socialist idea. It's the idea that none of us really are entitled to the fruits of our own labor but that it should all go into a, a common pot to be distributed by whom? Who should make that decision? Well, Barack Obama believes that there are elites in Washington who know better how to use your money, which they don't really believe is your money, but all the money that there is. They believe that they know how better to use it than you do. Now, I believe that the fundamental point of economic activity is not the redistribution of wealth, but the creation of wealth. And uh, this country has been very good at that. In fact, it's, it's still very good at that. I mean, we've heard a lot of bad economic news. There is a lot of bad economic news. But still, remember this. The United States is far, in a way, the most productive economy in the world. 
far and away, even now. Forget about China. China, the, the problem of China has been vast, in my view, has been vastly uh, oversold. Uh, you know, you could, you could make uh, your, your stuff there for 53 cents an hour or pay somebody here $20 an hour. Which would you do if you were a businessman? Well, of course, you would, you would send it to China or India or some other place to be manufactured. What do we do? What do we have here? Well, let me give you a list. It's a very incomplete list. Amazon, Google, Yahoo, Intel, Oracle, Cisco, Microsoft, Apple. It goes on. These are the most innovative uh, companies in the world. No one else can match us. What we produce is the most, the rarest thing in the world, talent and innovation. The problem is that our masters in Washington don't like that. What was the first thing that Obama did when he was elected? He went on a kind of world's tyrants tour, right? He jetted around the world talk, talking to people like Hugo Chavez and apologized for the United States of America. Well, is that a good thing? Is that what you want your president to do, to go around and uh, tell the world that America was exceptional the same way that Greece was exceptional, the same way that other countries were exceptional? I don't think so. It's like the, the chap who's the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury uh, who describes himself accurately, I think, as a hairy druid. Now, hairy druids are a fine thing, but is that what you want in your, the Archbishop of Canterbury? Wouldn't you prefer that he had some, allegiance, some fundamental, obvious public allegiance to the institution that he was appointed to head? Yes, of course you would. Same thing about the President of the United States. Now, in this great redistributionist enterprise that Barack Obama is about, what is he? What are his tools? Well, the fundamental tool is something that I, I wish I understood it. I, I don't understand it. It's a very. It's one of the world's most powerful things, but it's very mysterious. It's money. You, it, money is not the green stuff that you have in your pocket. Uh, it, you know, John Maynard Keynes said money was command over co commodities. That, that's, you know, that's a nice phrase. It, has, it comes maybe closer. But money is a very powerful, mysterious thing. Uh, Barack Obama doesn't understand it either, but he understands that it's, a, it, it's power. He knows that he can do a lot of things with it. And he's curiously divided in his mind about money. On the one hand, he likes to spend it. He really likes to spend it. Millions, billions, trillions. Uh, I, I don't know if you have this bumper sticker here, but I've seen it in New York. It says, it's a good thing that Obama doesn't know what comes after trillion. <laughs> now, uh, I, it may be that I have a somewhat limited imagination, but I cannot imagine a trillion dollars. I've, I've sat down and tried this. You know, you think of all those zeros and what that means. I, I really don't know what that means. I certainly don't know what $16 trillion is, which is what the federal debt is now, today. $16 trillion, or it soon will be, since they just got another $2 trillion added onto the tab this summer. Um, uh, a friend of Andy, Andy's and mine, uh, Kevin Williamson, actually uh, took the trouble to jot down the total debt and uh, unfunded liabilities of this country, it winds up to be $130 trillion, i.e., more money than there is in the entire world. And yet, our masters in Washington just continue on their merry way, 
spending, making commitments that they cannot uh, that they cannot meet. It's it's a it's a bad situation. That is the bad part of uh, of our economic situation now. A spend 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 mentality in Washington. Now, I said that Obama was curiously divided in his mind about money. That's because although he loves to spend it, he doesn't really like it. He, he regards money as something that has a kind of moral taint. He, he looks at wealth, and it makes him unhappy. He doesn't like to see economic success. He doesn't like to see individual prosperity. And what is he going to do about it? Well, he's going to take it away from you. Uh, in 2013, every single major tax category is going to increase radically. You may not know this, but if you look at the provisions of Obamacare, I can tell you that uh, if you, as a couple, make $250,000 or more, you're rich. You may not have thought you were rich, but according to Barack Obama, you're rich, and he's going to have to take some of that money. He's going to increase your income tax by 20%. You're going to find that your capital gains uh, tax has been increased by 60%. If you have, happen to have any dividends, the tax on that's going to triple. Uh, uh, the, your Medicare tax, aha, that's going to go up by 62%. This is just, just to begin, right? And the federal corporate tax, well, that's going to go up too. Combined with uh, the federal and state uh, corporate tax, we're looking at about 40% on, on average. Now, communist China's uh, corporate tax is 25%. Uh, socialist Canada to our north is 16%. It's going to go down to 15% next year. Ours is averages is about 40%. I remember um, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, one famous quote, one of the great uh, early uh, justices on the Supreme Court, the, the dawn of our republic, said, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And uh, I believe that that is what is happening now. This is a the biggest redistributionist scheme that this country has ever seen. And what it is doing is, is attempting to take uh, money from the productive part of the economy and shift it over to the non-productive part of the economy. Now, what is the word you always hear when Obama talks about taxes? What's, that, what's his favorite word? No, it's fairness. Fairness. We're going to, he said, I just want everyone to pay his own fair share. Well, what's fair? The top 1% of tax filers now pay uh, almost 40% of the tax revenues. The top 1%. The top 5% pay 60% of the tax revenues. The top 10% pay over 70%. Meanwhile, the, uh, there's something like over 45%, 47%, someone told me yesterday, of the people who file taxes pay zero income tax. Zero. They were taken off the tax rolls. That was the price of the Bush tax cuts uh, back uh, when, when, when that was negotiated. Now, you take all these people off the, the tax rolls, and what have you done? You've disenfranchised them in the most, the most fundamental possible way because they now no longer have any stake in uh, the shared enterprise, the shared enterprise that, that is America. Uh, I think it's a prescription for economic suicide. And 
I also believe that it doesn't take place in the vacuum of the economy. I mean, what Obama has done with uh, Obamacare or this uh, incredible enfranchisement of the EPA and it's this regulatory nightmare that, that has been foisted upon the country, it's not simply a matter of economics. It's a matter of his vision of how, how the state should relate to the individual. Basically, where the founders thought that the purpose of, of good government was to <clears throat> maintain order and we had a constitution to protect individuals from excessive government activity. Barack Obama is more interested in what the government can do for you or to you. It's a very different perspective. On the one hand, you have a view of government that puts a premium on individual liberty. On the other hand, you have a view of government that sees the government as a kind of shepherd. It's a nice word, shepherd. But what do shepherd? What do shepherds uh, have? Uh, what, 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 what do they take care of? They take uh, care of sheep. <laughs> sheep. Now, I'm not suggesting that Barack Obama doesn't want you to be happy. He does. He just wants to tell you how you're going to be happy. He wants you to be happy on his terms. Now, it's not, uh, it's not all grim news. These are, these are grim facts, but um, I, I believe that what we have seen in the last couple of years since o Obama was elected is the rebirth of a, the spirit of liberty in this country. And uh, I refer, of course, to, to the Tea Party. I think it's the most vibrant, vital, important, freedom-loving uh, phenomenon of my lifetime. Uh, these are people who understand what Ronald Reagan meant when he said that the, the nine most frightening words in the English language are, hi, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Now, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Now, I want to end by quoting my friend, uh, the late Irving Kristol, who several years ago in a speech for the American Enterprise Institute in Washington said this. For two centuries, the very important people who manage the affairs of this society could not believe in the importance of ideas until one day they were shocked to discover that their children having been captured and shaped by certain ideas, were either rebelling against their authority or seceding altogether from society. The truth is that ideas are all important. The massive and seemingly solid institutions of any society, the economic institutions, the political institutions, the religious institutions, are always at the mercy of ideas and heads of people who populate these institutions. The leverage of ideas is so immense that a slight change in the intellectual climate can and will, perhaps slowly, but nevertheless inexorably, twist a familiar institution into an unrecognizable shape. Well, that, I believe, is where the new criterion comes in, a magazine devoted to the life of the mind devoted to ideas. 
Irving also uh, remarked that to beat a horse, you need a horse. And uh, in a way, the new criterion is about filling, filling stables. We're, we're, we exist to fill the stables of ideas. Uh, you can't combat bad ideas if you don't know what they are. One of the things the new criterion does is acquaint you with some of the bad ideas that are out there. We tell you what they are, where they came from, why they're bad. But we also try to battle what I call cultural amnesia. We are out there to acquaint you with some of the alternatives, alternative ideas that some of the greatest minds of our tradition have thought about some simple but important questions like, what is the good life for man? What is the function of government? Uh, how, should, how should we you know, negotiate this shared journey through time that we're taking? Um, I, I began by noting that the new criterion, you know, we've, we're mature now, 30 years old. We're, we're, we're adults. We could not have done this without you, without people like you. Uh, we're small. Uh, we don't take any government money. Uh, and uh, we really exist at the because our friends believe in what we do and uh, have been very generous in, in helping us get this far. We've made it to 30. I hope that you will read the new criterion. You'll like what you read, and you'll think that it's important to have a voice of critical dissent like the new criterion, uh, an intelligent voice of critical dissent, and that it's worth, uh, worth your support. And again, I want to point out the Arabs have made their contribution to world culture, the zero. Thank you very much. <laughs>